Welcome to another episode of Accounting Insider. This is Kim Nitschke. I am today interviewing a longtime friend of mine, Ernie Kirsten, who I'm absolutely delighted to have with me today because I've been wanting to interview Ernie for quite some time. He's a very successful accountant, and I don't say that lightly. He's always been a somewhat of a role model and a bit of a mentor for me as well. And we've worked together on a number of deals, but he's got an incredible story which I'd like to share with you today. And we've just had lunch together and we're back at my office now when recording this interview. But Ernie, uh, I'm absolutely delighted. We talked about doing this interview maybe three or four weeks ago and you flew to the US and now you're finally back in Adelaide again. So um, I'm not going to give anything away because the story will come out as we delve into it. But um, can you just give me an overview of um, uh, who you are and what you do? Okay, Kim, I'm a chartered accountant, obviously, and I've um, migrated to Australia about uh, 40 years ago. Where were you born? I was born in Namibia (laughs) (laughs) to German parents. So tell me what mum and dad did. They were cattle graziers. They had a massive um, uh, sheep stroke cattle station in Namibia and I went to school in Cape Town. So um, growing up, were you just, you know, overwhelmed every night by the beautiful panoramic sunsets? And Do you remember all of that from your childhood? I absolutely remember all of that. And, I mean, I'm a avid devourer of books now, but then why should I read books when I'm doing it all myself? Um, I was shooting, I was hunting, I was horse riding, I was herding cattle and it was, you on a buzz, you were floating all the time. So, I mean, it just sounds like the absolute idyllic yep. upbringing and something that, you know, is in a world, you know, Absolutely. Of last century that we'll never see again. Yes, we won't see it again. Perfect environment. So um, mum and dad, mum supported dad. Dad was busy running the, the cattle farm. Do you remember yeah. sort of size of the property, numbers of cattle, anything like that? Uh, the property was about um, uh, 200 square kilometres, which is 20,000 hectares, um, about 1,000 cattle and a head of cattle and 4,000 sheep. So that was, that was enough. Obviously, you had real estate in, in other places like in Cape Town, but um, the cattle station took up his time. Yes, absolutely. And, and the other thing I'd have to say is the mother and the father were in partnership. She ran um, the stud um, whilst he ran the farm and vice versa. So um, back in Namibia amongst the Germans, the women took the reins with the men. They, they weren't in the kitchen. Um, so staff-wise, did you have um, black staff working on the property? Yes, this is a story all on its own mm. and it will require some other time. They were called Nama and they weren't black. They were a totally different ethnic group okay. and they 
geniuses. The only time you can read about them possibly is in Lawrence van der Post's books and various other books. Um, um, they, in African politics, they sideline, but I love them. They are smart. They are they are fantastic people. So did you have um, like nannies and all of that that were from that that group of people? Well, yes, absolutely. I, um, a, a, as a kid, I spoke German and their native tongue, but um, I've forgotten, I've forgotten their language. Well, now. Bro- brothers and sisters. Yep. How many? Um, one brother after the war, one sister born before the war. So okay. it's it's as simple as that. So just fast forwarding. So um, I presume primary school you did. In that district, yes, in that in that area, in a German school on the coast, and Lutheran, then, Lutheran, no, 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 no religion, no, no religion, okay, just pure German, and then obviously you had to learn English, so I went to the South African College in Cape Town, wonderful so place. Mum and Dad spoke German at home. Well, Mother spoke five languages. Okay, right. okay. she came from Germany, so um, English, French, okay. uh, German. Not a problem. Fantastic. Okay. Her, her father spoke five languages, including Russian and Turkish, so no problem. Yes. Um, so, the, the, but the main language spoken at home was German. German. Yes. Wow. Okay. So then, you finished um, primary school. Were, were you at an exclusive local? Well, I guess not expat, but German a German school run by the German. The Anglo-Saxon Germans in that area? In in that area, yes. Look, the teachers came from Germany. There's okay, no, perfect. There's no question about it. So it's a real subculture in that little precinct. It is a very much a subculture okay. in in Namibia um, of, of the Germans. But okay. um, uh, at age nine, I went to Cape Town, which is about um, a 1,000 miles away, and I went to boarding school there. And... Um, started learning English and Afrikaans. So, so was that terribly traumatic for you? Because you, you're being shipped off miles away. Hmm. You're, the native tongue there is a different language to what you spoke in your home, although you understand it. Yeah. But you are now, you know, nine years old is not very old at all hmm. and you're forced to, I don't know, I guess very dictator is sort of yeah. – um, but there's a flip side to this, Kim. Okay. This sounds like I'm interviewing Bryce there, Courtney. There is a flip side to this. Yes. And the South African College, the grounds were so beautiful. The, the, the whole environment was so fantastic that you actually got a buzz. You enjoyed it. You played sport. You played rugby. Um, it was a fantastic life. And you can even now see that. In I go to the... Um, old boys' dinners in Sydney, where there are at least 60 people from my school every year at the old boys' dinner, um, they still remember the school that, that life was a buzz as a kid. There was no question about it. So this experience of being um, relocated to Cape Town was not traumatic in the least. It was actually pre- pleasurable. And you look back on it as a Really fantastic experience. I would say that would be my memory of it. And um, sure, it was my brother and myself. He was two years older than me and we went down to Cape Town at about the same time. So we had each other to, um, you know, mutual support. Not a problem. Okay. And you, one thing 
the English do insist on is that you don't go and talk your own mother tongue. They insist that you speak in English. And that is very helpful for fast integration. So you had your big brother there if you were, if there was a problem, you went and spoke to him. Yes, look, for the first three months we used to babble to each other in German, but uh, after that we, we, we now speak, speak to each other in English okay. still when I give him a ring back in Namibia. Okay. And what was your relationship like with your parents when you were at boarding school? Well, I wasn't much of a letter writer, so I got a lot of letters from my mother and I might have written one obligatory letter once a term and um, I was only too happy to come home. You hopped on a train, three days, the train trip back home and then uh, the horses and the cattle and, um, yes, I got myself lost in the cattle station. Um, just while we're, sorry, back to the cattle station for a moment. Mm. Um, any lions, elephants? No. Nothing? No, no. No, no, no exactly. That, that was in game reserves. Okay, no, not on your place. No, 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 no. Okay. Um, um, all right, so you did, uh, sorry, just your relationship with your mum and dad, who would have you said that you were closer to? No, too hard to say mm-hmm. because as a boarder, um, you come home and uh, it's a, it's a, you, you got your mother and your father, but you're not closer to, to either of them. They're both just there yes, and they, you're doing both. stuff outside, yes. you're with dad yes, in the back yes. of Yes. Utes and trucks and that's right. All of that, and if yes. you're inside, yep. doing homework, mum's there and making meals and that sort of that yep. sort of thing. Okay. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Great. All right, so let's um, move forward. So you did quite well at school. Yep, great, great marks. And then, how did you go from Cape Town and end up in Adelaide? Look, I. Um First of all, went to university, Rhodes University, and then I did my chartered accountancy at Witts University in Johannesburg and then finally decided to migrate. Um, And I wasn't very political, but I thought maybe I should migrate. Um, The reality is from our family I was the only one who migrated. The rest of them are still there and perfectly happy there. Um, I first went back to Germany where we had property. Okay. But um, every time you got a job under the German rules, they had to then find out if there was a German who could do the job just as well. So I was getting quite uh, tired of that. Um, I rang up the Australian embassy um, And the moment they worked out that I could speak English, no problem. I was on the plane the next day here um, to Adelaide. I didn't didn't choose Adelaide, first of all, um, but I jet lag. So (laughs) when I landed in Sydney, which I've got to say is the most beautiful city in the world, um, I was jet lagged, so I just kept moving. And finally, when I got to Adelaide, everything was beautiful, so I stopped and stayed. I got... um, uh, a job straight away with Ernst and Young, and I. They weren't called Ernst and Young then, but uh, they were called Arthur Young, and a um, uh, uh, couple of steps here and there, and I then ended up with my own practice. 
Okay. So you, you similar to me, I work for PricewaterhouseCoopers. Yep. You work for a similar organisation, got your qualifications. Yep. One day I woke up and thought, I'm not moving through my career fast enough or um, I know more than my boss, I'm going nowhere, you know, from a mental development sort of um, point of view. Yes. And so you decided to go out on your own. I was ever so slightly different to you in so much as that um, my family always worked for themselves. Right. There was never anybody that actually worked for a salary for anybody else. So you had to create your own life and that was just in my DNA. So I was more comfortable being a chartered accountant, creating my own practice, expanding my own practice. Okay. And this is where um, probably you're leading to, this is where I met um, these Polish geologists from Lee Creek. Okay. And I did the books for several of them and... um, you know, they, they were very influential in the mining um, development of South Australia. That's, uh, so let's just stop there for a moment. So I think everyone's going to be aware that you somehow meeting this Eddie gentleman led mm. to spectacular results down the future, uh, mm. down the track. However, when you first met him, uh, from what I recall, he's got a very strong Polish accent to the yep. extent that you can hardly understand him. What were your first thoughts when you met him? Talk, talk us through that. Well, there's not much to say because I could pick uh, <laughs> that, that he was a genius. How did you know that when you first met him? Because, I mean, the language barrier would have st- stood in the way of you being able to communicate with him. So w- what was it about him that you identified as something truly unique? It's very hard to recall many years ago, but um, language barriers never bothered me, having been brought up in a country where there were many languages and um, in South Africa there were three official languages and you had to be able to speak all of them. So, um, and lending your ear to a particular accent has never been a problem. So, um, and... It was his his flair and his ability and thinking beyond his salaried position. He was always, he and I travelled the Flinders Ranges um, doing exploration work. In fact, one of the um, exploration licences we sold off to a company that was just about to be listed. Um, I won't mention the names. Um, And... I'll include in that group Bill Nichols, who is also a man with flair and ability. Yes, so so people of a certain personality do flock together. Okay. So you just started out being his accountant and he was a salary and wage earner for a government organisation. That's right. Okay. Now, you've told me this story and I need you to elaborate on this because... The Poles were the first people, and they don't get the recognition for it, to do aeromagnetic surveying and gravity surveying in the state. Now it's uh, everybody knows about it, but they were the first to do it. And obviously as they're talking to each other, um, 
um, it's not meant to be a secret because the state government, in its wisdom, gives it out to everybody. But we were virtually the first ones to see the um, gravity surveys, density of the underlying uh, strata. Besides genius, as Edison said, there's 99% hard work and Eddie Koros was a hard worker, was an extremely hard worker and he um, left no stone unturned. But the reality of the tenement that got um, abandoned wasn't coal, it was oil. Then Eddie Koros went to the mines department um, having done all sorts of other work, but I have to say this, he went to the mines department and searched out the oil results. Now, you know that oil's lighter than water and coal's specific gravity is 1.38, so it's heavier than water. And these results showed strata of 1.38 gravity when they were doing the seismics. Now, an oil geologist would not even look at that, but a coal geologist knew exactly what it was. This is Eddie Coros. Um, the reason why we went to Queensland years before was that a friend of a friend of a friend who Eddie knew, a massive, large cattle station, would, they were drilling for water and they hit this black stuff. And they were saying, what is this? And then they approached Eddie, who they knew was now a consultant for BHP and consulting all over the place. And, they, and Eddie went up there and said, Ernie, here's an opportunity here. Let's go for it. And it was, it was early stage investment. We, we were out there in our swags, taking samples, looking at things, and um, But let's face facts. The hard work was Eddie. The genius was Eddie. Um, I slipstreamed along with him because I recognised the abilities that he had. And so then he moved south. Besides the fact that um, we got Total from Paris to come and have a look at our early explorations. Um, Hang we, on, sorry, can I just interrupt for a moment? Yes. So. It wasn't black rocks on the surface. It was... You will have black... You will have outcrops of coal in right. various places. And where we initially were, the Queensland coal map, which now does, no longer gets printed, <laughs> said there's coal here, okay? okay? But then in the middle of that was like a big egg where it said no coal, because that area was full of basalt. Right. Basalt is um, the result of volcanic um, eruptions or, 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 or it, volcanic activity it's down below, and so it burns the coal. It's burnt coal, isn't it? Yeah. It, Which is no good. Uh, basalt is not burnt coal, but it coal does not exist in marketable form where there's basalt. And so... Therefore, that whole area by the geologists was marked as um, no coal. Now, Eddie, 
this is another chapter of the story, said, you can't tell if it's basalt unless you actually walk up the hill and look. And this particular hill we walked up um, and Eddie took the stuff and said, Blind Freddy can see this is not basalt, it's sandstone. Okay, so let's just go back a step. Now, didn't Eddie also say that the geologists that probably made the call on what this product was were too lazy to walk to the top of the hill to actually find what I can't what this say whether they were too lazy. They, <laughs> the, the explorational licence that they applied, the line was drawn south of this hill. Okay, so you could see the hill from there. Which looked like part of the basalt outcrop like the rest of the ranges around it. Right. So, okay, so from their tenement, they did the right thing. They yep. ticked all the boxes and it really didn't look like there was anything yes. unusual about their tenement, so they handed it back and then at the same... They never applied for it. They the never applied instance. for it, mm. whereas Eddie, being a persistent little fellow yes, that he was... that's right. ...went onto the tenement... Yep. Did the extra 1% that most of us wouldn't do. That's right. Saw the hill. Yep. Saw the, the, the black stuff at the top of it. Yep. Walked to the top. How, how yes. tall is this hill that we're talking about? Uh, 100 metres. 100 metres. Yeah, so a bit of a pr- hike pretty, up there. Yeah, pretty hike. And yes. you went up there with him? Yep, obviously. And he said, Blind Freddy can tell this is not basalt. He knew in, when it was in his hands it was coal. No, it wasn't coal. It was sandstone. Sandstone. Yes. The Which coal is, is underneath. Okay, but is, 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 the, is, is the telltale sign when you've got sandstone that coal? No. How did he know it was it, down there? Well, he, this is where I say it's 99% perspiration. <laughs> like Edison says, he had also done his research at the mines department for months beforehand. He researched what, okay. the, what the oil companies had let go the oil companies weren't interested in something that was 1.38 specific gravity. Eddie could see the decent, neat flow of this layer um, probably about 20, 30, 40, 50 metres below the surface. Now, so but so he, because of all his experience in the coal industry, yes. he was an expert, world, world expert. Yes. He could hardly speak English, but he knew... Results. He could see yeah. maps. He could mm. ask the right questions at the Department of Mines and all of that can, sort of stuff. Can I say his English was good? His accent was hard to understand. Okay, that yes. is a massive difference. Yes, and because his written English was absolutely immaculate, um, it was just a case of people not understanding him in the first instance. Okay, in the second instance they would. Now. I missed the point that you're so saying. So he, um, the the information and the 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 um, results and the 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 um, all the testing that had been done by the government organisation, yeah. all the information was available for everyone. It's just that this incredibly intelligent gentleman yep. was able to pull all that information together, correct, process it, yep. and come up with a hypothesis or a theory on yes. what is actually down below the surface. That's right. And you were there standing right beside him as That's his right. right-hand man, as his yep. financial advisor, yep. right at the point where he made that call on yep. top of that mountain. Yep. I had the same sense. People make movies about horse whisperers, but I saw them firsthand in Africa. 
people that had a touch with horses that nobody else had. I had the same sense that this guy could smell the coal where nobody else could smell it. But obviously it wasn't smelling. It was his brain accumulating all the facts to get to 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 this reality. Okay, so you're on the mountain. He's made the call that, and you're basically, Eddie, if you like it, I'm there 100% behind you because I trust you. I know how mm. smart you are. Did you race into the mines department and then peg out your tenement over that mountain? We did. Okay. And that would have been relatively cheap. Was anyone at this point thinking that there's well, something special there or wasn't it, it wasn't until you got in the driller to, yeah. to start drilling the samples that? Look, Eddie, Eddie knew the coal was there. Okay. The map said no coal. So You think that he was mad coming up with that theory if the reports from the experts say there's nothing there? And back then, um, governments were not making money out of extracting um, high fees and high exploration licence fees, particularly in Queensland. And um, that was initiated by Bjorka Peterson. He made sure that the big mining companies either used the exploration licences or they would lose it. So things became available to smaller operators. This was a window of opportunity that came and went because now a small operator has no chance of doing this sort of thing. This was a window of opportunity. The licence application fees were small so that small people could access it, but the time frame was short. If you didn't use it, you would lose it. That was the okay. rule of the mines department. So we managed to scrape enough money together to do some drill work. How much are we talking roughly? And um, now I'll, I'll, I'll leave that okay. for, for later or, or not at all. Okay. But the reality was that um, Eddie knew Peter Mitchell extremely well. Peter gave us a drill at, uh, at, at, at very low costs and the first drill hole, this beautiful black stuff came up, absolutely unbelievable. Were you and there at the time? No, I wasn't. And, but I heard the story. Was that, Eddie there? Yes, Eddie was there in his swag with the driller and, um, you know, and the, the next morning before the sun rose, Peter Mitchell was there. He obviously got a phone call at night from the from his from his driller hand and probably said, "Boss, you better come and have a look at this." They had never seen anything like it. Well, they had, and they knew what they were looking at. <laughs> and Peter Mitchell was one of the greatest guys I have ever met. He said to Eddie, "Look, I was about to put a million dollars into my super fund." Um, but I think I'll buy shares in your company instead as long as you use my company for the drilling work. And that was the first partnership um, of, of real big money was Peter Mitchell. And from then, um, admittedly, they took the driller to the other side of our tenement Mm -hmm. 
they found nothing. So they rushed back this side because the number of holes you drill that show up black is what you need. Yes. You just don't need one hole. No. And so they drilled up to 18 holes showing the best perfect. So there is a... um, map tech company here on Glen Osmond Road that um, then did a three-dimensional picture on computer of what this result looks like. It was absolutely fantastic. And um, I've just got to switch this off. And, yes, so that is about the first I saw of it was the 3D picture of these 18 holes that were drilled and Peter Mitchell then became our partner in the business. Then there was a long, lot of long, hard work of developing this um, exploration licence into what's called JORC standard, joint ore body standard. You have got to drill in a certain pattern and prove it up. And when it was proven... A company called Excel heard about Millennium Coal and they approached us and we were very fortunate. There are lots of fortunate um, happenings in this whole story. Too too much good luck than than, than you could um, want to have. They approached Millennium and said, we will buy you out and we will incorporate Millennium into XL Coal. And that's what happened. So we um, got a fair fat amount of cash and a fair fat amount of shares in XL Coal. So this ore body that you uncovered with Eddie, wasn't it said to be the largest coal ore body in Australia? Or in the top five or ten. Okay. I, you'll have to edit this again, Jason, because I will be challenged on that. In your opinion. In in so much as that um, the valuation at the peak of coal prices that Millennium Coal would have been valued just short of a billion dollars. A billion dollars. Yeah, just short. And XL Coal um, sold out 100% their company to Peabody. And uh, Peabody still operating that area extremely well, extremely um, successfully, and they're expanding in it. So... When you look at the Peabody, um, when you Google the Peabody Millennium Coal, it'll say that production when they took it on was very limited. That's true because it was only in its embryonic stage when Peabody bought the company. Initially, we were equal partners. But you've got to recognise the input. So my shareholdings whittled down to about um, maybe a third, a quarter of what his shareholdings were because um, 
other people had to come in, like Peter Mitchell, for example, mm. like Excel Cole, and um, Eddie was the managing director of Millennium. He's, I recognise his input. Everybody else recognises input. So um, towards the end, he had about four times as many shares as I did. Initially, we were 50-50. There's no question about it. Then when Peabody came in, Eddie Coros sold out. I stayed in and it was several years later that I sold out and um, I can only say I sold out very handsomely and I'm very grateful to Eddie for introducing me to this game. Mm -hmm. Um, And whilst he's still in coal mining in a very, very big way, um, I'm totally out of it and I'm back. Um, as a chartered accountant in Adelaide, doing a bit of property development, um, doing this, that and the other, which keeps life interesting, I've got to say. When this um, sellout took place and, you know, this was, I mean, uh, the result of a long, long journey but you, you finally got your cheque, how did it change your life? Not much. I still drove my same car. Um, I, I, it hasn't changed one bit. Um, uh, it has relieved a lot of pressure mm. because when you are borrowing to leverage a business, there's always that stress when you don't owe anything, there, there is a major stress that you don't have to deal with. That, that is one change. But um, as far as I'm concerned, I, okay, I've got a vineyard, but I still walk around the vineyard and pick the fruit and the berries from there. Somebody else who knows what they're doing actually um, manages the vineyard. Um, Right, I've got a big house, but the only reason why I bought the house was I had to park my money somewhere. Um, yes, I've got a few developments around, um, but me personally, um, it hasn't changed much except I do a lot more travelling and go visiting the family back in Africa and uh, those things. But my personal life has not changed at all. And um, looking back, um, how has it uh, – so you, you and Eddie um, sort of have gone your own separate ways now, but um, is there – what would you say to people who are considering accounting as a profession? Is it um, a profession, would you say, in hindsight, that opens up a tremendous amount of opportunity and, you know, if, going to business can be one of the greatest benefits and teaming up with these sorts of people um, can be life-changing and it's... That indeed is true because um, you study accountancy and you meet all sorts of people. In fact, people confide in an accountant more than they would in their doctor. Um, If you have an entrepreneurial flair, 
and you can team up with people who ask you. I've never asked anybody to team up with me. They ask me, would you like to um, be involved in this or that business? And you can pick and choose. And if you have that entrepreneurial flair and um, the willing to, willingness to do something outside accountancy, um, there are many great opportunities, I've got to say that. Well, Ernie, thank you ever so much for being part of Accounting Insider. I'm just overwhelmed by your story. I just think it's such a great story. I'm just um, so excited that you've been able to come and spend some time this afternoon with us telling us about the journey. Um, I'm absolutely fascinated by it. So thank you ever so much. I mean, this is the reason why I'd lunch with you because you're an entrepreneur. You can think outside the square. Um, and that's what gives me a buzz. Just a few opportunities thinking outside the square and you've got to remember you invest in people because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. And that's probably where I end the story. Fantastic. Thank mm -hmm. you. Brilliant.